Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I found an incredible picture of the ENIAC taken six months after the war ends, and it has people dwarfed in the picture. And there are six people in the picture, and two of them are women. And I thought, wait a second, who are the women? And so I looked and I found more pictures of ENIAC, and there were more women. The 40th anniversary of the ENIAC was coming up, and at the 40th anniversary, I found a cluster of women talking about uh, programming the ENIAC. And when they introduced themselves, they began to tell me their stories, and I was fascinated. I was captivated. That's Kathy Kleiman. The women she met that day were among a group of six women who programmed the first-ever electronic computer. And that made way for the whole field of computer programming that's changed our world. But until Kathy Kleiman rescued those six women from obscurity, it was as though they had never existed. This is an amazing story you have to tell. Six women who changed the lives of every one of us, and yet they were totally erased from history, and you found them. Thank you for doing that. It was, it's been an incredible adventure, uh, trying to find them and then learning their story and recording their story and now sharing their story. It's a real detective story, how you brought them out of obscurity. They were the first people ever to program an electronic computer, right? Right, right, because the ENIAC was the world's first all-electronic general-purpose programmable computer, and they were its first programmers. And this all happened during the Second World War, when there was a problem firing guns, big cannons. They got mathematicians to figure out the proper setting so the trajectory would travel through not only air, but different temperatures of air. Right, right, exactly. Weather in the battlefield has a big impact on the arc of the trajectory. I never thought I'd know much about howitzers, but I learned medium and long-range howitzers during World War II traveled 8 to 14 miles. And at that distance, whether it's snowing, whether it's raining, whether there's crosswinds, can really change where the shell goes um, after it's been fired. But there was this equation, it's a differential calculus equation, and if you could take one gun and one type of shell um, for and, and factor in the weather conditions on the field and knowing where you wanted to hit, where the target was, you could very accurately figure out what angle to shoot the gun to hit the target. 
but it took 30 or 40 hours to calculate these ballistics trajectories by hand. And so the army running short of, of male mathematicians early in the war went looking for women. So how did they recruit them? That's a really good question. So um, the, it was a group of the Army at, called the Ballistics Research Lab that had these calculations, and they were based in Aberdeen Proving Ground. And Aberdeen, Maryland is rural northern Maryland, and they knew they weren't going to find a whole bunch of women in the swamps near the Chesapeake Bay. So <laughs> they relocate the project up to a partner, a partner that they've already got in the war, which is uh, the Moore School of Electrical Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. And they say, hey, can we use uh, some of your rooms and bring in women to calculate these ballistics trajectories? And um, the Moore School says yes. And the Army starts recruiting across Philadelphia, advertising in the Philadelphia newspapers for women math majors. And this was extraordinary because at the time, almost all jobs for math majors were were for men. And I didn't realize until I started looking through um, the classified sections of the newspapers in the 1940s, there were different male help-wanted sections and women help-wanted sections at the time. And accountants and actuaries and bookkeepers were on the male help-wanted side. So uh, one of the programmers, uh, Kathleen McNulty Mockley Antonelli, says it was two weeks after her graduation from Chestnut Hill College for Women. She was one of three math majors in her class. And she's looking through the newspaper and there's this big ad that says the Army wants women math majors in Philadelphia. And she nearly falls off her chair and she calls up her two best friends and says, we have to apply. And one has just gotten a job, uh, one hasn't, and they, um, and together they go off, the two of them go off to apply uh, for these jobs and they're hired on the spot. And the name of the job falls in an unfamiliar way on modern years. They were called computers. The, the people doing the calculations, the people doing the calculations were called computers. Right. And when I first found this out, I was astonished that a computer was a person long before it was a machine. But now that we've all seen the movie Hidden Figures, uh, we, know, we know that women were computers. So it took 40 hours to calculate one setting on the gun. So in order to speed that up, somebody came up with the idea of an electronic computing machine. This was the vision of Dr. John Mockley. He was a physicist from Hopkins uh, who was working at the Moore School during World War II on some Army radar experiments. And he had been teaching physics and he had been thinking about how difficult it was to do the calculations. This was before the war. And he came up with this idea for a general purpose programmable all-electronic computer, a brilliant idea. But um, everyone at the time said it would be impossible, that there'd be too many thousands of vacuum tubes which weren't reliable and the machine would never run. So he hooked up with a young electrical engineer, only 23 years old at the time, Jay Presper Eckert, who was too young to know that all of this was impossible. And Press Eckert made it possible. And the two of them together were the visionaries and the the leads on, on the ENIAC project. So then they had a hundred female, mostly female computers doing it by hand. They chose six out of that group. Is that right? They did. That's exactly uh, right. To write the program, to create the program that would solve these problems of trajectories of the guns. So how did they know how to do that? (laughs) That's a very good question. I mean, it had never been done before, right? That's right. That's exactly right. So the men build the men of 
uh, Mockley and Eckert and, and a team of young engineers build the ENIAC. It takes about two years. And it is eight feet tall and 80 feet, feet long in the back of the first floor of the Moore School of Electrical Engineering. And it works against all odds. It works. And so they come, they come very close uh, to finishing it. And they, they, they look up and they're like, wait a second. Doesn't the contract say we have to do one more thing? Don't we have to have a working ballistics trajectory program? And so uh, the head of the computers, uh, Captain Herman Goldstein, goes and chooses six of his best computers and said, um, you know, I'm hiring you to do a different job. In researching the story of the six women who taught themselves how to program this giant machine, Kathy Kleiman found an interview recorded in 1972 of the woman she mentioned earlier, Kay McNulty. We were told we had to learn how to operate this machine. Well, how do you go about that? Somebody from Moore School, I just don't remember just who the person was, uh, gave us a whole stack of blueprints. And these were the wiring diagrams for all the panels. And we, they said, here, you can figure out how the machine works and then figure out how to program it. Well, <laughs> this was uh, a little bit hard to do, knowing nothing about anything. So Dr. Burks at that time was one of the people assigned to explain to us how the various uh, parts of the computer worked, how, the, how an accumulator worked. Well, once you knew how an accumulator worked, you could pretty well be able to trace the other circuits for yourself and figure this thing out. So uh, we then uh, proceeded to program a trajectory to, to go onto this machine. I find it very interesting that these women were given blueprints of the machine, but they were never allowed to look at the machine because the machine was a secret. In someone's infinite wisdom, when they were assigned to the ENIAC project, they weren't given clearance to go into the ENIAC room, which had a big restricted sign on it. That would be changed a few months later. But while they were learning the ENIAC, they can't just walk in and look at the units and see where to plug this in or where to switch that. Um, they, they really did have to work off these crazy diagrams. And they had no programming language to program it with. Does that mean that they were, they were actually rearranging ones and zeros? A very interesting question. So the ENIAC was actually a decimal machine. It worked in, in base 10. So that made it easier to see the numbers going in and see the numbers coming out. We uh, Later, all later machines practically would be binary. Um, but also the ENIAC's interface was something we now call direct programming. The first steps that the women did are what every programmer has ever done then and now, which is taking a human problem and breaking it down into the steps the computer could handle. In this case, breaking down this differential calculus equation into mathematical segments and then breaking it down logically into the very, very small incremental steps a computer can do. And of course, a computer has no intuition the way the women computers did. You really have to tell it everything. But for ENIAC, you had to go one giant step further, and you had to directly plug the numbers, they called them digits, um, the, the digits into each unit of the ENIAC where you needed it. So let's say you wanted to do a, a multiplication, which ENIAC could do in lightning speed. Um, you could bring two big numbers in, but you physically had to route with a thick digit cable one number into the high-speed multiplier and also bring the other number in with another cable into the high-speed multiplier and then bring a program pulse, which would initiate the start 
of that particular step. And then the high-speed multiplier would go into effect. It would do the operation. It would give you the product. And then you had to take that number and route it to wherever else you needed it on the machine. Tom Petzinger of the Wall Street Journal, who wrote about the women in 1996 um, and included some of my research, he said that the women were not only the programmers of ENIAC, they were also the operating system of ENIAC because they knew where every number was every microsecond of the program. So because the machine was figuring out many problems at once, they had to time it correctly? That's right. It sounds like an enormous logical problem. Uh, a huge logical problem, a puzzle. And I'll take it one step further. It was a puzzle you could do in parallel. Um, when I was programming, the computers I used didn't operate in parallel, but ENIAC did. So you could have multiple calculations going on at the same time. Each unit had its own timing, and you had to coordinate the numbers coming back in and keep track of everything. Betty Holberton, who would go on to a 40-year career at the cutting edge of computing, always said that parallel programming of the ENIAC was the hardest thing she ever did. So the end product is kind of amazing. They went from 40 hours to solve one problem to seconds solving the same problem. Did that mean that each time you gave it a problem, you had to plug all these wires in? Each time you changed the problem, you had to, you had to rethink the logic, the mathematics, and, um, and then break it all down to all the steps and where the cables and plugs would be and what switches you wanted to set, and then reset the machine up for the next major calculation. So what is really remarkable about this story is these women were doing pioneering work in computing. And when I said they changed the lives of every one of us, if we all had the computing machinery that we have on our laptops and our desktops and our iPhones with no program to run them, we'd be holding a piece of junk in our hands. They, they did literally change our lives, and yet you had to track them down. Their names weren't even known. How did you do that? How did you, how did you become aware of them, and how did you track them down? Necessity is the mother of invention. I was taking a lot of computer, a number of computer science courses when I was an undergraduate. And initially, when I started taking these computer science courses, which were programming courses, there were women and male, there were male and women students. But the, when I got to the advanced courses, it was almost all men, both faculty and students. And, and that was fine. Everybody was wonderful. But I wondered about women in computing. Uh, there were two famous women in computing, Lady Ada Lovelace in the 19th century, who worked with Charles Babbage and thought through some of the concepts of communicating a human problem to, in that case, an electromechanical computer. And um, Captain later Rear Admiral Grace Hopper in the U.S. Navy in the 20th century. But that's one woman a century in computing, and that did not make me mm. feel like I had many prospects in computing. So... I really wanted to find women in computing. Were there other women? And I took a course, a seminar in American women's history, and I had to write a paper at the end of that seminar, a long paper. And I wanted to write about women in computing. And so it was a good impetus to 
go looking. And in the Encyclopedia of Computer Science, in the secondary sources, I didn't find any more names of women, but I found an incredible picture of the ENIAC taken six months after the war ends. And it's a, it's a picture of how big the ENIAC was, and it has people dwarfed in the picture. And there were six people in the picture, and two of them are women. And I thought, wait a second, who are the women? But the only people in the captions were the two men in the middle, Dr. John Mockley and Jay Presper Eckert, the co-inventors, who absolutely deserve to be in the captions. But I, I really wondered who the women were. And so I looked and I found more pictures of ENIAC, and there were more women in those pictures. And now I thought, this is incredible. And I went to my professor and asked who the women were. The professor sent me to the director of the Computer History Museum, which was brand new at the time. And it was in Boston. Now it's huge and it's out in Silicon Valley. And the director of the, of the Computer History Museum told me that the women were refrigerator ladies. And I didn't know what a refrigerator lady was. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> she said... Um, the, the black and white pictures we were looking at from 1946 reminded her of the black and white commercials on television, on the early television, of the women models opening the Frigidaire with a flourish. And so basically she was telling me they were models <laughs> and that I should stop asking silly questions. Oh, my God. So how did you find out that they were not models, but actually mathematicians? I went to primary sources then. And fortunately, Captain Herman Goldstein, who was the computer supervisor um, at, at the Moore School, wrote an autobiography. And on one page of that autobiography, he talks about hiring, taking, selecting six of his best computers and asking them if they would program ENIAC. And he names them. And I thought, okay, I have names. There's no footnotes, there's no references, there's nothing in the bibliography. I scoured everything. But with those names, I started calling around the University of Pennsylvania. And I reached a senior retired professor, Professor Saul Gorn, who said he didn't know about those women, but that when he was a student at the Moore School during World War II, there were young professional women working for the Army on projects. And they might be the women that I was looking for. And he said the 40th anniversary of the ENIAC was coming up and he invited me to come. And he said, maybe I'll get more answers. And at the 40th anniversary in Philadelphia, um, I found a cluster of women talking about uh, programming the ENIAC. And when I, you know, later when they introduced themselves, it was the women in that paragraph and the, and the six women I wrote the book on. Um, it was actually four of the six. And so they began to tell me their stories. And I was fascinated. I was captivated. There's a story you tell about the big day of the demonstration after they had been programming it. And the day before the demonstration, I think they were still trying to figure out the bug what the bug was or how to solve it. And miraculously, one of the women figured it out just in time. Right. So the day before demonstration day, there, um, there is a bug. There is a bug in the program. It's still, it's not stopping when it hits ground. It's kind of digging a little hole. And uh, Jean Jennings Bardick and Betty Snyder Holberton stay late uh, trying to figure out the bug. But ENIAC has 3,000 switches and hundreds of cables. And the question is, where's, you know, where's this little bug? And um, they, they can't find it. And they, they run to catch the last train. And then they come back early the next morning. And in her sleep, Betty had gone through all the cables and all the 3,000 switches and figured out that one switch was off by one position. 
And she comes in, she makes a beeline for that one switch. She turns it one of nine notches. And now the program is working perfectly and they're ready for demonstration day. And um, that night, after the big demonstration for scientists and technologists, there's a big dinner with the president of the University of Pennsylvania and the head of the National Academy of Sciences and the engineers and the deans and the generals, but not the women. The women were not invited to the dinner that night. There's the bug. (laughs) Yes, there's the bug. When we come back from our break, Kathy Kleiman tells me how several of the women among the six programmers went on to help found the commercial computer industry, as well as raising families, and how meeting and getting to know those women inspired her own career, helping shape the modern Internet. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Kathy Kleiman. This is such an extraordinary story of the women, and you made a wonderful documentary called The Computers. It's very hard to watch that and not be moved at some point when you realize what what they were up against, the task they had, how they accomplished the task, and were forgotten even while they were doing it. I'd like to say their names. Betty Holberton, Jean Jennings Bartik, Kay McNulty, Marlon Westkoff Meltzer, Ruth Lichterman, and Francis B. Las Spence. Thanks to them for the work they did that have actually changed our lives and improved our lives. What did they do? What did they do after the war? So initially after the war is over, they keep working. And this fascinated me because we know that the army is running a campaign to give a man a job and have the women leave the factories and field. But the army asked these six women to please stay because nobody returning from the battlefields knows how to program ENIAC. And so the women stay initially to uh, prepare for demonstration day that we were just talking about on February 15th, 1946 for the scientists and technologists. And then the army wants to know 
more about what is a general purpose programmable computer? What can it do? And they invite in about six world-class mathematicians who have something called 100-year problems, problems that would take about 100 years to calculate by traditional methods, and said, hey, you know, you want to try to use our computer and see if it works. Um, they walked in, they saw this huge computer, and they said, who knows how to use this? And each of them would find one or two ENIAC programmers and work with them to convert their mathematics into, um, into a program for the ENIAC. And this became, not all of these uh, equations worked, but it became proof of concept that the ENIAC really could solve an enormous array of military and civilian problems. And after that, the Army moves the ENIAC to Aberdeen Proving Ground, which is, you know, which will be its home for the next nine years, and invites the programmers to come down and continue working. And five of the six programmers will continue working with ENIAC after the war. They will lead programming teams, they will teach programming, they will supervise and manage programming of the ENIAC. And then they'll all go off in their different directions. And Betty Holberton goes on to a brand new computer company called Eckert Mockley Computer Corporation, where they are building the first series of commercial computers called Univac, Computers for Business. And she will create the C10 instruction codes, uh, the C10 instruction code, singular, for the Univac, which is a predecessor to programming languages. And so strong and so powerful that according to one of its um, programmers, Millie Koss, who I met many years later, she said the C10 was so good that it delayed programming languages for years, uh, for a few years. But when it came time for those programming languages, Betty Holberton was right there helping develop them. Uh, some of the women would get married. Kay will marry Dr. John Mockley um, in, uh, a few years later. Um, Jean Jennings Bardock will continue to work on ENIAC for a number of years, and then she'll stay home, raise a family. They'll all raise families. And then she'll come back and she'll work in various uh, computer companies, but she'll also go into computer publishing and start writing about microcomputers and help businesses pick the right computer. She loved doing that. Um, Ruth Lichterman and Teitelbaum will move, will get married and move to Texas, but she'll work in an early computer division of a company. Just fascinating stories. I love these women because they had such full, wonderful lives and they both worked and they raised families and they were so happy about doing that. You've had a very varied career yourself, haven't you? A little bit. What are some of the various positions you've held? After um, I graduated college, I went to New York. I went to Wall Street, and I was uh, I was a social theory major, and I but I'd taken all this computer science, and I was handed a very long screwdriver, and told that I was maintaining the connections of Morgan Stanley, New York, to Morgan Stanley, London, and Tokyo. I helped maintain international data networks um, out of college. And I got very interested in the data that we were sending all over the world. And I said, are there any laws about this? And my boss said, no. And I said, there will be. And I started studying for law school. And I went to law <laughs> school. And I came out and I joined a telecommunications law firm. And I was working with the law of telephone companies and satellites and microwaves, basically you know, the big networks that run our that run our world. And I really loved doing that. That's the the laws that are um, and regulations that are created by the Federal Communications Commission. 
But early on in my career, an early internet question came to me about domain names. Uh, nobody knew what a domain name was then. Now we use them all the time, right? Amazon.com, redcross.org. And this was an early domain name dispute. And um, it was fascinating. And the internet only had about, I don't know, 40 million people on it around the world. And I was on it and I thought it was amazing. And so I kind of jumped into this early area of internet policy and internet governance and um, worked with small internet service providers, uh, kids who were trying to provide more bandwidth so they could connect onto America Online and Prodigy and CompuServe, the online services of the day. And they were also wiring their schools and their libraries and the senior centers. And um, they were having some problems with internet issues. And all of this wound up putting me, um, gave me a front seat to how we govern the internet. And I became part of the group that founded ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, which creates the rules and kind of oversees the internet infrastructure. We don't handle the content because every, every country's content laws are different. Some countries ban hate speech, some countries don't. But we try to keep the internet infrastructure, we kind of call it the roads and the bridges and the street signs of the internet. We try to keep it all going. And now there are over 4 billion people online on the internet. And um, I think part of that is thanks to this private not-for-profit organization out of California with an international board of directors and an international group making rules called ICANN. And it's been incredible to watch the internet's growth and play a small part in it. It's kind of amazing that you've been part of a project that got all the countries of the world to agree on one thing. That, that sounds unique. One world, one internet. But of course, it all hooks back to the ENIAC programmers because when I was a young attorney, I would walk into the rooms of all men and wonder a little bit whether I should be here, whether it was the young inventors of the internet, the 20-somethings, or the older intellectual property attorneys, also male, and I'd wonder whether I should be there. And I would actually talk to Kay and Jean and Betty, and they're like, of course you belong there. And so I had the best role models of all and the best mentors. So why are there still fewer women than men? in the fields that we've been talking about. Is it role models? Is it not having the boost of seeing yourself represented by, by other women? What is, what's the problem? That's a very good question. And many people have different answers to it, but my answer is the one you just mentioned, not seeing yourself in it, um, not seeing role models. Uh, it's easier to be somewhere when you can see the, the role models, when you can see people who look like you. I don't think it's absolutely necessary, but it's much easier. And there's this stereotype that is, is actually putting a lot of people off that says, you know, white men invented everything about computing and everyone else kind of has to prove they belong here. And I think that's making it harder for people. So um, if we just knew that history tells us that the first 
computer team, the ENIAC team, was both men and women. It was very diverse with lots of immigrants and people of color. And just, it was incredible. And so it, in some ways, illustrates to us that diversity is important in computing. And um, I think if we knew more about our history, it would be a more welcoming place for the the women and men who we're trying to attract into the STEM fields that we know are going to have a lot of jobs in the future. Well, you've done a wonderful job in defeating that defeatism. <laughs> and I, I thank you for it. I wish we had more time to talk, but we have to end our conversation now. But we always end our conversation with seven quick questions. They're roughly to do with communication. First question. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I really understood the answer to the question that you asked, which is how do we attract more people, uh, more diversity? How do we make everyone feel comfortable in STEM? Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> um as a law professor, I sometimes encourage my students and other attorneys to reevaluate the evidence a little more closely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? How did I program ENIAC? <laughs> and I said, I have no fountain of youth and I didn't program ENIAC. So the answer to that question is read my book. <laughs> right, now it is. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, that's a good question. Um, oh, I, I generally jump in. That's a good technique. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know, a dinner party. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Particularly on the East Coast where I live now, I ask people where they came from. In Washington, D.C., almost everybody comes from someplace else. And they like talking about it. And I often find more than I'd expect that they come from the Midwest, which is where I come from. And by, you know, within a few sentences, we're talking about home and in the Midwest and uh, we become fast friends. What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence is um, knowing that there were people like me ahead of me and that uh. They made mistakes and they had challenges and it didn't go right the first time or the second time or the hundredth time. And they kept trying. And so I don't have to get it right the first time that uh, it's a process of trial and error. And you can still be a, a pioneer, even if you, you know, fall down and have to get up. Great. Last question. What book changed your life? I don't have a single book, but during COVID, I read books about other places. I miss traveling so much that I would read books about lots of other places in the world. And each of them changed my life because they brought me wherever they were in the world. So I could, I could think about you know, something other than my house and the little bit of the bike path that I walk on and, and, and think about the world outside and what it would be like when transportation and borders opened up. Well, thank you for a wonderful conversation. Thank you for a wonderful documentary and a wonderful book. I, I really hope that the work that you've been doing these past few years on this is carried on by other people inspired by you. And thanks for this terrific conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And it's such a pleasure to meet you.
This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Kathy Kleiman teaches Internet Technology and Governance for Lawyers at America University Washington College of Law. In the early days of the Internet, she was a key member of the group that crafted the regulations governing domain names, names like .com and .org. Her 25-year mission to tell the stories of the six women who founded computer programming has led to a documentary film titled The Computers, and to a recent book called Proving Ground, the untold story of the six women who programmed the world's first modern computer. She also founded the ENIAC Programmers Project, which you can find at ENIACprogrammers.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Daniel Lubetsky. He founded the multi-billion dollar company that makes the nutrition bar Kind. The name Kind was inspired by his father, a Holocaust survivor. But it's also the touchstone of a project called Starts With Us. And that's founded on the idea that being kind, especially in today's fractured society, requires curiosity, compassion, and courage. I think the problem that exists in society is that people associate kindness with weakness. And the reason that happens, Alan, is that people confuse kindness with being nice. Now, you can be nice and be passive, but if you're kind, you, it requires enormous amount of strength. It requires the strength of a protagonist. And kindness also requires enormous amount of honesty. A nice person might not give you feedback because it's not nice to tell you that you have something between your tooth or that you did something wrong. A kind person has the courage to tell you you have something between your teeth. Daniel Lubetsky, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.